speaker, it's Dr. Joe Margalek, who is professor of molecular microbiology and immunology at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. He will discuss issues in the aging HIV-infected population. Joe is a colleague of long standing, and it's a pleasure to have him here at this course. Thank you, Dan. Well, thank you very much, John. And thank the organizers for the privilege of talking to you today. What I'm going to do is talk about some background on aging and then some issues that relate to processes of aging, and then some critical ways of thinking about the types of data that we have. And I'll illustrate that with data that we've generated in the multi-center AIDS cohort study. So HIV is an issue of increasing importance in the over 50 age group, with an increasing percentage of both the number of HIV cases and the proportion of cases in the over 50 population. The proportion is now over 20%. So it's an evolving thing as more and more people live longer, and also there is a not trivial incidence of new cases in the over 50 age group. And HIV infection has long been known to have a striking similarity to the aging process, both at the biological level and at the clinical level. So with T lymphocyte loss, decreased cellular immunity, in fact, the original definition of AIDS used by the CDC surveillance team was that in order to be diagnosed with AIDS, you had to be under the age of 50. That is an old bit of history. There's replicative senescence, as you've heard in the previous talk, with an accumulation of lymphocytes that are the phenotype of end-stage differentiated lymphocytes and pro-inflammatory markers such as interleukin-6, TNF-alpha. At the clinical level, untreated HIV disease especially is associated with sarcopenia, weight loss, wasting syndrome, cognitive disorders, rheumatologic disease, decreases in musculoskeletal integrity, and a frailty-like clinical presentation with no specific illness but leading to disability and death. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. And even in treated HIV infection, which is the clinically important issue with respect to aging, effectively treated people have an apparent earlier onset of chronic diseases that we know to occur in an aging population. The question is, are they due to aging or are they occurring because there's more time for these diseases to occur and they don't occur by the same processes that aging represents? So that's an important issue to keep in mind as HIV becomes a chronic disease and these aging-associated toxicities and morbidities become more prevalent. We have the HIV-associated immune decline, decreased T-cell replacement and cellular responses to heart. We've heard just in the previous talk that aging is important in the response to heart. 
and there is residual immune activation. And frailty as a manifestation of aging uh, may have an immunologic component or partial immunologic mechanism, even in people who are HIV negative in the aging literature. IL-6 levels, for example, are a good predictor of the development of frailty. So there are issues of time versus the aging process. And another issue which we'll come back to is what is the appropriate comparison group if you want to know something is happening more in a treated aging HIV population than in um, a population that was not HIV infected and being treated. And the HIV population is not the same as the general population. There are a lot of other um, more uh, morbidities associated <coughs> with HIV that have the same risk factors, there are other chronic infections, other exposures, and comparisons with the general population or a population that doesn't have the same age distribution may lead to a false impression that HIV itself or the treatment for HIV is leading to a difference that um, can be misattributed to aging. Now, it's important to define what we're talking about with aging. It's something that um, means many things to different people. Um, this slide is given to me by Luigi Ferrucci, uh, who is the scientific director at the National Institute on Aging. And it describes the state of, uh, you know, at least his thinking and many of other experts on aging as to the types of phenotypes that represent the aging process and reflect what we see. And the main things are changes in body composition, uh, shown at the top of the slide, decreased energy production and altered utilization, disruption of homeostatic systems, and neurodegeneration. And all of these processes contribute to what we see clinically as frailty. And for a long time, it was hard to research frailty because we didn't have a good definition that could be used as a case definition. And then frailty, which is a really a broad term reflecting increased susceptibility to diseases, increased um, uh, compromise after an insult, decreased ability to recover from that insult, and, and a, really a failure to um, thrive. And as a result of that, all the things that we associate with aging, which are listed at the bottom of the slide, uh, become bigger clinical problems, more difficult to treat, more difficult to prevent, and with greater consequences if they do occur. And we can recognize many of these things in treated HIV infection. So I'm going to illustrate some of the types of data that make us think that aging could be associated with HIV infection or maybe the other way around. Um, we're talking about these main um, characteristics of the aging population now. So for body composition, here's data from a study by Montano et al., where um, people who were HIV positive and testosterone levels were low were treated with testosterone, and in each case, um, you have a placebo-treated group and an antiretroviral-treated group. Um, actually, it's a testosterone-treated group. And the testosterone-treated group has significant increases in weight on the left, uh, their lean mass as measured by DEXA scan in the middle, and a decrease in the percent of body fat um, shown on the right. 
And these are changes towards a more healthy phenotype induced in this HIV-positive treated population. So everybody was on antiretroviral therapy here. Um, by replacement of something that might have been missing as a result either of aging or of HIV infection. And the same is true of energy expenditure. You might think that um, if you look at HIV-positive people, um, there would be an alteration in energy expenditure. And this is a study uh, by Fitch et al., where they measured basal metabolic rate. And it was elevated, as shown on the top right there, at 108%. Uh, in an HIV-positive um, population, again, a treated population. And the correlations were different uh, with the different body compositions and the HIV-positives and the negatives, which I won't go into. But the point is that the elevated, uh, the, the basal metabolic rate was elevated, which might make you think that that's consistent with immune activation, might elevate the body, uh, the BMR, but many other processes could do that as well. Immune activation, as you heard from Dr. Rodriguez, persists. Um, the point I wanted to show you here is that this is a very heterogeneous process, and it depends um, on the types of immune activation markers that you measure. Um, in this slide, there are four markers. The top two are B-cell, B-lymphocyte activation markers. Um, lower IL-6 is the serological cytokine, and then there's C-reactive protein. The two bars on the left are pre-antiretroviral therapy. The middle two boxes are post-antiretroviral therapy. And the right box is seronegatives. And these are data from the multi-center AIDS cohort study that were published earlier this year. And you can see for soluble CD30 and 27, the levels decrease after heart, but don't come back to normal. With IL-6, the levels don't decrease after heart and remain elevated. And with C-reactive protein, the same is true. So it's very important in thinking about immune activation to consider that this is a complex phenomenon and the immune system has many components, mediators, and pathways that we need to understand if we're going to talk about which immune activation components are related to which outcome. In terms of homeostatic changes, um, here's a slide from the MAX from Todd Brown's study indicating that the percent of people who remain free of diabetes over time, defined as a blood glucose greater than 126, um, uh, is lower in people who are on antiretroviral therapy, shown in the dotted line, compared to HIV-negative men in the cohort. And this has the advantage of being a demographically matched um, group. So we have the HIV-positive men receiving heart, um, and compared to HIV-negative um, men who have sex with men who have been followed in the same way for the same period of time and their age and exposure matched as best as we can do. And there's a higher incidence of this homeostatic disruption um, to the tune of fourfold risk elevation. And if you look at homeostatic dysregulation in HIV-infected people, um, many studies have looked at many aspects of this. Glucose, neurologic, T-cell um, are all uh, fat and muscle and body composition. These are hallmarks of aging and HIV infection. Um, hemoglobin, 
homeostasis does not seem to be very much disturbed in people who are HIV treated. And T-cell homeostasis, although it's lost in untreated HIV infection, does mostly come back if you look at total T-cells in the treated people and in studies that we've been working on. But it's important to know not just is the system looking normal, how hard is it working to maintain that level of function, and what would happen if it were stressed. Um, these are data that, for the most part, we don't have uh, as it relates to system homeostasis and aging and HIV infection. Now, I'm going to talk a little more about the syndrome of frailty, which presages many of the aging changes and is um, one of the areas in which uh, the concept of premature aging and HIV infection has evolved. Um, and it, that is related to the concept that there is a different rate of aging in different people. Um, I've already mentioned that frailty is a state of vulnerability to stressors, and the definition that uh, conceptually people have used is up at the top there, aging-related declines in resiliency and reserves. And in the graph is illustrated the idea that there is a, quote, normal aging pattern, which is faster in some people. And on the way to becoming disabled on the vertical axis at the bottom is this frail state, and even before that is function is declining, there is what's called a pre-frail state. And it's associated with the types of bad outcomes that are listed on the uh, lower left there. So you have a syndrome where there's weight loss, sarcopenia, loss of strength, loss of exercise tolerance, a slowing, low physical activity, energy expenditure goes down, and this is forming a uh, vicious cycle. And these findings were used by Fried et al. to make a definition that could be a, um, a case definition of frailty that could be used to uh, study um, mechanisms, prevalence, epidemiology types of questions. One of the concepts is that in this vicious cycle, anything that triggers part of it may lead to the rest of it. So it might be a frailty syndrome that we can attribute to a specific disease, such as congestive heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or cancer or diabetes and many others. One question is, does HIV trigger this? And the more physiologic systems that are abnormal, the greater this the chances are that the system will get disrupted and lead to then the progressive vicious cycle and the downhill um, pathway of uh, frailty is, that is associated with aging. So the definition that Freed et al. proposed about 10 years ago now was that in order to be frail, a person needed to have three of the five components shown here, physical shrinking, measured by an unintentional weight loss, weakness, uh, which can be measured by grip strength and others, exhaustion, which can be, you know, in typical fashion is self-reported, um, slowness of physical activity, and the proposed measurement that they used was time to walk 15 feet, and a low level of energy expenditure on physical activity level. 
And this was um, used to define prevalence and outcomes, and so uh, it was epidemiologically verified or validated as a medical syndrome. So why would we care if this is happening in HIV infection? Well, one possible reason would be that in HIV-negative elderly populations, it's very clear that frailty is associated with adverse outcomes. Um, if that were true in HIV, uh, and we could measure it and define it, that might lead to uh, changes in clinical care. We know that this has been treated with, HIV, uh, with untreated HIV infection. Frailty is common, but we want to know if it is now seen with increasing likelihood compared to HIV-negative people and people who have chronic HIV-treated infection. And it's also possible that drugs used to treat HIV could contribute to frailty development. In either case, there may be interventions that would reduce the severity or incidence of frailty. And the last thing I want to mention is that studies of the development of frailty in people with HIV infection could, if the pathways and mechanisms were similar to what happens in HIV-negative people, inform our understanding of how aging occurs in HIV-negative people. So in the MAX, we've been looking at these questions, and I'll just briefly describe a few things about this study. Um, it's a longitudinal study started in 1984 in the four sites shown here. Um, we collect a variety of data on people every six months and store specimens. Um, and in 2006, we instituted the timed walking of about 10 meters and hand grip strength measurements with the idea of defining frailty uh, epidemiology uh, better in our cohort. And we have clinical outcomes that are assessed continuously through a variety of means, not just at clinic visits every six months. So it, it's a remarkable um, data set that gives us an opportunity to look at some of these questions. The first thing we did was to try to do a retrospective study applying the criteria of uh, Freed et al. to the data we already had. So we could measure physical shrinking, weakness, exhaustion, and slowness to some extent. Um, we really didn't have a good measurement of uh, muscle strength, so that's why we instituted this. Um, and some of these things were self-reported, um, and so it had to be approximated using questions that we already had. So the two things that are indicated with the asterisk, weakness and slowness, we put in a more objective measurement. The other ones, we used what we had, and so we could only measure four, so we defined what we call the frailty-related phenotype because it didn't meet the criteria of frailty uh, in all respects. And we assessed this frailty-related phenotype present if three of the four components we could approximate were present. Um, in the uh, cohort that we had with the data that went back um, really to about 1995 or 1996 um, and followed them um, with those data, so it's really between max visit 21 and 41 here that I'm going to show you results on. So this is data from about 1,000 men representing about 
uh, almost 13,000 person visits. The first thing was that the frailty-related phenotype had a prevalence that went up with age, and this was kind of a necessary um, validation of our definition. Uh, if it didn't go up with age, it wasn't going to be of much use. And by the models that were used, the prevalence of this phenotype was about the same in a 55-year-old man infected for less than four years um, and a 65-year-old uninfected man in the study. So this is suggestive of an earlier occurrence of a frailty-related phenotype um, in our cohort of HIV-infected and uninfected men earlier in the HIV-positive population. Oops, wrong line. And the, the biggest factor we found predicting this was the CD4 cell count. And there was a, a nonlinear increase as the CD4 count got lower um, in the prevalence of this frailty-related phenotype. And the shape of the curves is very similar if we looked at the 1994 to 95 era, 96 to 99, which is the um, middle line, and in the heart era, 2000 to 2005. And then we asked the question, does this mean anything? And, and to do this, we looked at the survival of people who uh, started on antiretroviral therapy, depending on whether they had the frailty-related phenotype at the time they started therapy or did not. So the top line here, and the outcome is percent of people who did not develop um, clinical AIDS, defined by OIs, or didn't die. So this is a live without clinical AIDS percentage shown on the vertical axis. And the two lines represent the survival of people who did not have the frailty-related phenotype in the black top line, and the lower red line is the people who did. And the bottom line was that the people who had the frailty-related phenotype had a, a worse survival. Um, and this was true in people who did not have AIDS at the time they started therapy. It was also true in the smaller group who did have AIDS. We couldn't use AIDS as an outcome, but we could use death as an outcome, and it was true. Um, and it was tr true in people whether or not they had viral suppression. So actually in our cohort, about uh, the, the, the rate of suppression is at least 80%. So most of these people did achieve viral suppression. And uh, this disparity in the outcome was true. So it suggests that this frailty-related phenotype does have some clinical significance, um, both in terms of remaining AIDS-free if you don't already have it, and if you um, survive if you have AIDS. And this was all done after adjustment for education, ethnicity, age, Nader CD4 T-cell count, um, and maximum plasma viral load uh, before therapy. After adjusting for all those things, um, the proportion of visits at which um, the frailty-related phenotype was present, and this was in the three years before starting antiretroviral therapy, was still statistically um, significant, as shown with the adjusted hazard ratios and p-values in the red on this slide.
So what I've showed you about the frailty-related phenotype was that it was associated with an earlier occurrence in the HIV-positive population. It was associated with lower CD4 T-cell counts. The prevalence um, decreased a little bit, but still was related to the CD4 T-cell count after the induction of heart. Um, and it, it was after adjusting for older age, education, and AIDS, which were associated um, with it, it was still predictive of an increased risk of AIDS or death after starting antiretroviral therapy. And this was true even in people with HIV suppression. So these are reasons to think that there is something going on that at least has the phenotype that is related to um, an aging process. We've been doing more studies now using the full frailty phenotype definition. So now we're back to the three of the five full components that were part of the definition by Fried et al. And as I mentioned, we introduced the grip strength and walking speed measurements to be more objective. So these are recent data which have not been published from this study where since 2006 we have been looking um, at this phenotype. So these are data from 2009 and 10 um, that were presented at CROI um, earlier this year. So on the vertical axis we have the prevalence of the frailty phenotype. On the horizontal axis we have age by decade. The blue bars are HIV negative men and the red ones are HIV positive and below you have the number of events and total person visits. So at age 40 up to about 50 there isn't much difference between the HIV positives and negatives but after 50 their negatives are lower than the positives and the odds ratios are about two. And after 70, the incidence is high in both and not statistically different, as you can see by the 95% confidence interval bars. So this, again, is suggestive of an earlier occurrence of this frailty phenotype in people who are HIV positive. And I should mention, this is only the positive people in the cohort who are on antiretroviral therapy because we don't have enough HIV positive untreated people to do this study. And 80% or more, as I mentioned, are uh, virally suppressed to undetectable le um, levels, less than 50 copies. So here are the uh, adjusted hazard um, the ratios, or the prevalence ratios by age. Um, it's the 50 to 59 and 50, 69, 60 to 69 that are statistically different from one. And you have all HIV-positive people on the left and the ones who had undetectable viral load on the right. And they look basically pretty similar. Now, there's some interesting aspects about the frailty phenotype, though, that make us think um, this may be different from aging in the uninfected population. For one thing, on the left is shown the number of visits out of seven that we've looked at where people had a frailty phenotype. And about half the people had one visit uh, out of a maximum of seven, with a median of about four visits where they had the phenotype. So what we see is that there is a fluctuating number of visits at which people have the frailty phenotype. There isn't a lot of longitudinal data in the HIV-negative people about the prevalence of frailty uh, longitudinally, but what there is says that 
people, when they become frail, tend to stay frail if you watch them over time. And here what we're seeing is that people often go in and out of frailty. So we really have to do the longitudinal studies to know if the meaning of having the frailty phenotype in an HIV-positive treated population is the same as it is in an HIV-negative population where the criteria were actually developed or whether, you know, we'll have to modify the criteria or even develop new ones. So this is a caution about interpreting this frailty data too much, even though the frailty-related phenotype was associated with a clinical outcome. Now, I want to move to the concept from the max of looking at diseases associated with aging in an HIV population that may be different. So these are data from a paper by Meredith Shields et al. that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine last year. Um, there have been many papers suggesting that the incidence of cancer is higher in a treated HIV-positive population than in the general population, that this might be due to aging because cancer is associated with aging. The message from this paper was that it was important to think of the distribution of the years at risk. So in the black bars here, the dark bars, this is what they did was to look at 15 AIDS cancer databases. And so the age distribution of the people in those databases is shown in the black dark bars. And in the general population are the lighter bars. And, and especially at the higher ages where the risk of cancer is greatest, there aren't very many HIV, um, well, actually this is people with AIDS. So the, the, the distribution of people with AIDS has a much uh, lower median age and not much in the older ages where cancer is higher. So the idea, this makes it impossible that you could see what's happening in people with AIDS at those ages because we don't have many years at risk in those ages. We will have that data, I suppose, as time goes on. But if you just for the years at which people were actually at risk, then you get these kinds of distributions where the uh, dark, this may be hard to see, but it's in the handout. The, the circles um, of age distributions based on adjustment for the age are actually very similar for most of these cancers um, in the general population and in the age-adjusted AIDS population. Whether this generalizes to the HIV-positive non-AIDS treated population is another question, but it illustrates the caveat that one has to be wary of other variables or differences in the populations that may be pertaining to the question you're trying to address. And the comparison groups are very important. And here's another example of that. Um, this is uh, estimation of glomerular filtration rate by age in the multi-center AIDS cohort study. So the orange triangles are HIV negative. The green ones are HIV positive men in the cohort. And it's stratified by age as shown. And if you look at the lower ends of the green um, pyramids, um, they go lower at many of the ages than they, in the HIV positive or green groups than in the HIV negative groups. The medians are actually quite similar. 
but the lower end of the distribution is different. So if you're looking at aging, you may need to be looking at um, not only the medians, but the overall distributions and looking at a few cases and looking for other risk factors. We recently, this is estimated GFR, we recently did the same thing with measured GFR, and there's a similar suggestion of an age effect, but whether that represents aging or other factors that may predispose to renal disease is um, still being worked out. We did find that HCV was associated with renal disease. The indications are, and that's more prevalent in the HIV positive group, which may contribute to these findings. Okay, so to um, wrap it up, we can measure frailty, at least by phenotype in our cohort, and it's measurable now in HIV-positive men, but we have to wait to see what it means. Um, we need longitudinal studies to work out how this connects to mechanisms of disease um, and the role of antiretroviral therapy and whether immune activation, chronic infections, or after taking all those things into account, aging itself may be effective. Um, the interaction of HIV and aging, if it's there, may show up at intermediate ages or earlier in people who are HIV positive on treatment, and we've seen that there's some evidence of that. So it's not an implausible idea, but it's one that's difficult to prove. And to do this, you need to know more about the mechanisms of these diseases and aging and have proper comparison groups. So just to conclude, the study um, that I showed you with the cancer data from the Annals of Internal Medicine was accompanied by what I considered to be an appropriate and insightful editorial um, that advocated caution in thinking of HIV as a cause of accelerated or premature aging. And I put the quotation here with a few bolded statements that represent my own personal emphases. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Joe, just let me start off. The, the, the issue, issue you raised at the beginning of your talk about immune activation and aging or frailty, uh, could you expand on that a little bit while you're, we're waiting? There, you know, the, the function of the immune system is to damage things. And so when you have immune activation and cytotoxic mechanisms and reactive oxygen species and um, biochemical mechanisms that are toxic, the, I, it, the immune system has the challenge of killing or getting rid of what needs to be gotten rid of without damaging normal, normal tissues. And if you look at people who are 
apparently aging at different rates, um, the people who have the earlier onset of aging-related symptoms such as frailty tend in prospective or nested case control studies to have higher markers of immune activation. Um, the one that has been studied the most is interleukin-6, as I mentioned. So interleukin-6 measured in the, in the plasma is a marker of what is presumed to be an immune system that is damaging tissues at a higher rate than somebody with a lower level of immune activation. At least that's the idea. It's a question of uh, will we be able to distinguish between effects of HIV versus effects of heart? Well, it's a tough thing to do because um, we don't get much chance to follow people now, less and less, without being on treatment. So I guess the way to make that distinction is with um, different treatments. So, for example, one might want to ask is, are these processes associated with protease inhibitors? And you could look at that question. Um, if you had an appropriate and sizable group of people who were on suppressive therapy that didn't involve protease inhibitors. And that would be a part of distinction. There also are, is a, you know, more and more people are stratifying even undetectable viral loads and trying to figure out if there's residual viremia that is uh, in some way associated with the level of immune activation. And that is another approach to this. But the, the questions are very, very uh, intertwined. So I think it will be difficult. Has there been, in your studies or other studies, correlation between frailty and neurocognitive function? The, the correlation has been, um, well, it's still under study is the short answer. Um, it, there isn't an obvious strong correlation. Um, in, in, in some respects, neuro, neurocognitive function in terms of the decline over time in our HIV-positive men was no faster than it was in the HIV-negative men after you adjusted for age. So I don't, it may be that there is going to be different mechanisms involved, but I, it's too early to say. I mean, these frailty measurements that I showed you are kind of hot off the press. And were just presented earlier this year, so we don't have the full correlation on that yet. Do you have any data on the uh, effects of estrogen use in transgendered males and this whole issue of um, aging and frailty? Yeah, basically, we don't we don't have very many people like that, so I can't. I don't think we have data. It's a handful of people in the max, if at all. So no, we don't have data on that. Um, in the in the patients with AIDS who then went on heart uh, and who you looked at, did the uh, the diagnosis of AIDS due to say viremia due to CMV or some other opportunistic infection affect could you correlate, uh, you know, any of the opportunistic infections that persons had survived uh, with frailty? 
we looked at the diagnoses in the people who were frail at the initiation of heart and the people who were not, and there was no difference. So it didn't affect the type of AIDS that you got. It's not the world's largest number of cases, but there was no difference that we could detect. Given the risk of potential risk of cancers at an earlier age, this is a clinical question. Should we be in HIV-infected persons? Should we be beginning cancer screening at earlier ages? Well, let me say I'm not a clinician. <laughs> um, I think the approach should. My guess would be that it should be risk factor driven. I don't think we have um, convincing. I mean, there are controversies for certain types of cancers that are associated with HIV, like anal cancer. Um, so I would say for those cancers, you know, yes, but that's not an aging-related driven question. That's an HIV or other you know, risk factor driven answer. And whether you should do it in people who don't have risk factors otherwise, I think, is still an open question. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joe. Uh, we'll take a 10-minute break. And, uh...